if there's any part of them that feels called to leadership, to know that to answer that particular call, even if it's the most, the tiniest of ways, meaning the way in which you parent your children, going into the school system, like as in the PTA, and just contributing that what we need are ordinary human beings, ordinary citizens who are not sitting by passively allowing our leadership to determine our happiness, that all of our bodies matter, all of our thoughts count, and all of our actions um, can actually make a difference. And so that's what I'm interested in, seeing people uh, develop that confidence to know that they can actually move this needle. Welcome to Commune. I'm Jeff Krasno, your host. Each week on the show, we explore the ideas and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. In addition to being a podcast, Commune is also an online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. Our next course, Redefining Leadership, starts on March 4th and is now open for free signups at onecommune.com. To get us in the leadership headspace, we interviewed course leader Sean Korn, who founded Off the Mat Into the World alongside Suzanne Sterling and Halakuri. Together, they've been leading workshops connecting practices such as yoga and meditation with effective and impactful leadership for more than a decade. And we need this work now more than ever. The world is in crisis. Every day, we're facing countless humanitarian, environmental, and political issues, and humankind is searching for its next class of leaders, conscious activists who know how to focus on collective healing. But in order to step out as a leader, we must first cultivate our own sense of self. By reflecting on and confronting the challenges in our own lives, we can develop the tools for connecting more deeply in our communities and leading with humility and with love. But what does it look like to actually do this work, to dig deep and cultivate powerful, empathetic leadership? Answers to all this and more in today's episode. I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. developed a lot of thinking around leadership. So I'd, I'd start with the basic question of like, what are the essential characteristics of great leadership? I think that leadership should never be molded down to a, a specific common denominator, because then that will eliminate so many people from feeling as if they have the ability or the skills to be able to be effective in their leadership because they're not this one thing. I know for myself and my leadership, I have self-confidence. And for me, that has been helpful because it allows me to take certain emotional hits that doesn't get in the way of me being able to do what I know in my heart is the right thing to do to be in service whether it's in service to to um, my community, to this nation, or to God, I know who I am. I know what my purpose is, and I know what I'm being asked to contribute to. And my self confidence um, doesn't let me waver off of that. So, if someone has a point of view that interferes with my own vision, it's not that I don't investigate, but my confidence doesn't allow me to become passive 
to their perspective. And so that's in my leadership, confidence is very important, but that doesn't mean that someone who doesn't have that kind of confidence can't be a leader with and, and utilize some of the talents that they have um, that might not be so uh, overt. Yeah, so this is, brings up an interesting question for me, and sometimes and I, I grapple with this often uh, around leadership, is because to cultivate your leadership qualities, I think one needs to cultivate kind of the best version of themselves often and to really get to that place of compassion where they're actually recognizing other people's opinion in equal proportion to their own. And at the same time, though, a leader must sometimes be like undaunted. How do you recognize the humanity in someone that you disagree vehemently with and also then lead against potentially what they believe in. So, for example, a white supremacist. You know, how do you actually walk into that uh, uh, situation with someone like that, where you're where you're coming from your highest self, and in, in, in essence being able to recognize their humanity, and that they're in some ways maybe doing the best they can with the tools that they've been given as a human. But on the other hand, stand in incredible opposition to what their actions are and what they may believe about race. How do you balance those two things? You know, you, I think your question, especially right now, and especially in the context of the spirituality and the wellness communities, is an absolutely essential one to grapple with. And that's really what has to happen. It must be grappled with because I know that in my own activism for years, I was against something and it took unpacking and understanding my own shadow to recognize that I was participating then in the very thing that I wanted to heal, which was the separation that I needed to find something that I was for. And in theory, this all makes sense. But when you're in the presence of hate and when you're in the presence of a perspective that is actually demonstrating a perpetuated violence against people, people that you perhaps love, people who are, who, um, are directly um, uh, affected by that particular point of view, unless you have some real skills for self-regulation, it's almost unbearable and it's almost predictable that you will get triggered, that you will react, that you're probably going to do exactly what they want you to do, which is to become overwhelmed and hysterical and, you know, judgmental. And then there's that divide. And so it's it's impossible for me to say, here's what you do, Here, here's the game plan. All I can do for myself is to look at the ways in which I have exhibited those characteristics, maybe not as extreme, but where... Where is it within myself that has participated in creating separation? Where did I learn that from? What is the addiction to it, the trauma that surrounds it? And if I can develop a certain amount of empathy for the resonance, for the energy that motivates someone to hold on to that judgment, it's helpful that when I'm in that relationship, I need to know what are my triggers going to be, and when they do or say something that is going to predictably trigger me, how do I stay in my body? How do I breathe? How do I stay resourced? How do I recognize also when harm is being created and I am no longer in a position where I'm going to get heard or met, and uh, 
if that's the case, how do I get out of the situation? You have to know what your capacity is. For example, I have an ability to be able to maintain my center around um, pimps and people who have severely abused and exploited children. I don't know what it is in my nervous system that allows me to be able to have a conversation with someone who, on a, of course, on a personality level, on an ego level, I abhor, um, perhaps because of my own trauma, perhaps because of my own history of exploitation and abuse there and the healing that I've done around it. I can engage and see the brokenness in them and the way in which perhaps their own trauma has filtered into their self-expression. But I cannot be in an environment where someone hurts or harms animals. I have no capacity to maintain my center. It becomes all about me. I become very emotional, incredibly reactive. Therefore, I know that where I need to be in my leadership is in environments where I can maintain and hold my center in the face of that overwhelm and conflict. And where I don't need to be is in the places where I do not have the capacity to hold that kind of trauma and hope someone else can. So there's different kinds of leadership styles and capacities that are appropriate for different kinds of situations. You know, for me, I always think of like like a couple of sort of archetypal leadership styles that I'm always sort of kind of battling with. One is sort of like the humble leader. Mm-hmm. Lao Tzu writes about this quite a bit in the Tao, and I, I'll just read a quote that has always really stuck with me from this is the 17th verse of the Tao. When the master governs, the people are hardly aware that he exists. Next best is a leader who is loved. Next, one who is feared. The worst is one who is despised. If you don't trust people, you make them untrustworthy. The master doesn't talk, he acts. And when his work is done, the people say, amazing, we did it all by ourselves. So, you know, he also talks about the ocean as being the most powerful body of water, but it's also the lowest body of water. And all the streams and creeks and lakes flow into that. Lao Tzu is saying kind of lead from the bottom, like Mm -hmm. the ocean. Don't lead from the top. Mm -hmm. Kind of maintain your humility. Don't speak. Just act. And that is a certain kind of leadership approach and style, and one that's very honestly compelling to me but also one that sort of flies in the face of some more of the kind of modern archetypal leader, which is this sort of like Steve Jobsy, like hyper-creative, super impulsive, maybe somewhat reactive leader. Is conscious leadership one of those things, or does everyone really just kind of have to cultivate their own form of leadership? I, I tend to err towards... The- believe it or not, the, the latter, that that leadership is creative and it has a myriad of expressions and one is not more correct than another. And that I think that right now we need all of these different examples of leadership to be able to be successful in our pursuit for social change. And that there is leadership that is more subtle and quiet, that empowers from you know the, the bottom up, and that there's that's instrumental in collective growth and change. And sometimes we need more 
charismatic leadership that is out there on the front line where other people can sit back and say, I, I, this person is speaking the words that I myself have never even been able to express or understand. I'm motivated. And as a result of that leadership, they begin to develop those qualities within themselves. There's purposefulness to it. Um, I wouldn't reject any form of leadership that's out there. The only form of leadership that's problematic is one where the leadership is about the individual, where it's about themselves. So even if someone is on the front line and it's they're taking up a lot of space, if that space is in service to the whole and you can feel the authenticity and the sincerity within that individual, I think I'd be right there cheering them on. Uh, so I think that it's, uh, to me, leadership should and could be broader and more creative. Is a great leader always a servant then, you think? To me, yeah. yes. As a spiritualist, that someone who is deeply committed to being in service first and foremost to God's will, and that means truth and love as it, as it radiates from the inside, that's reflective of all souls. Everything that I do has to be in service to what that ideal is, which is love. Without that, I have no doubt in my mind I will be motivated by my ego. So you talked before about the ability of great leaders to remain grounded and centered and sometimes calm, right, in situations. And what is the sort of relationship between, in your opinion, between sort of spiritual and embodied practices and leadership? Well, why are those things important? Because in leadership, there's too many opportunities because of opposition to become reactive based on your own trauma and on your own ego. And if you're not eating well, if you're not sustained, if you're tired, um, all hungry, all of that, it creates an environment for reactivity. And once you get into reactivity, you create separation and then you're the problem. So having a body-based practice, meditation, prayer, diet, all these things that create sustainability allow us that when we're in conflict and crisis, our body will tell us before our the words will come out of our mouth if we're about to do or say something that's actually going to create opposition and not positive opposition, but problematic opposition. I can see leaders who are out there that you can just sit back and watch. It's just a matter of time. The burnout is predictable. You could see it on their bodies, on their face, and then in time reflected in their words. And so I wouldn't put myself in a position of leadership without committing to an embodied practice so that I can be present to my ego, so I can recognize when I'm in overwhelm, and so that uh, I can begin to gauge. Like, I don't know I'm overwhelmed until I'm basically ripping off someone's head. Like, that, the, the, the line is so thin. When I'm doing embodied practices, it lets me know, like, oh, you're, you're actually stressed right now. You're actually angry right now. You're actually sad right now. And it gets me present to those, those more subtle determining factors that impact the way in which we communicate. And so I would love to see all leadership having some kind of a practice that gets them in their body, in their breath, um, connected to their shadow so that they don't take that compressed or contracted energy into their leadership and into the work they're doing in the world. Would you say that great leaders create connection? They create yoga. They create union. I'd like to think so. Is that yeah. like the core of great leadership? I'm curious, who are the, 
your role models for leadership? You know, it's really interesting as you're saying this, that um, I don't really think that I've given it an enormous amount of thought in terms of uh, emulating leadership in one way or the other. I never actually made a conscious decision to step into leadership. It's just this evolutionary part of my own yoga process that seemed inevitable in the same way you kind of advanced from downward facing dog into handstands. It's just in time, slowly one thing becomes another and the foundation of one thing uh, allows you to elevate into this other thing. I think of Angela Davis. I think of Gloria Steinem. I think of Marianne Williamson. Obviously women, for whatever reason, are, are, are leaders that I look at. I look at the way they uh, the way they step forward, uh, the way they engage, the, the use of language, their vulnerability, um, their willingness to pull the veil back and to hold themselves accountable. I think I'm attracted to leadership that exhibits those qualities. I think my body stops when I see that because I know internally that the path of yoga and leadership invites me into that particular increase. So when I see someone demonstrating it, a part of me stops, cocks my head and is like, oh, that. Do you think you need to have a sense of what or who God is to be a great leader? And I use God in the broadest sense, a, a sense of kind of the contents of your infinite soul or however you want to see that as to give you a sense of what is fundamentally true and good and right? Mm -hmm. I, I can only answer that. That question for myself is yes. But I have no doubt in my mind that there are leaders out there that do not believe in God, who are atheists, who are extraordinary in their input. What I would believe, though, is that I would substitute that word God for love, that I do think that every great leader has to be motivated by love. And to me, that's how I interpret God. And that that love is and compassion and empathy that wants to unite, that wants to be in service to all, that wants to see equity and justice and recognizes the, the humanity that exists and their responsibility, that humanity. Um, call it what you want, but that love is the thread that will bind and will liberate. And so I think that the leaders that I've, I've responded to, I could feel their compassion and, and their humanity uh, and their grief for, when I think of Martin Luther King, you know, just the grief of people not getting this and recognizing people's determination to continue to perpetuate bias and prejudice to the detriment of so many. And uh, a leader that is motivated by love is a leader that can truly move the needle and move us towards peace, but from the inside out. Are we ready to introduce that word into the public discourse now when our society needs it more than ever? I don't really hear anyone talking, at least on the national stage, about love. You know, it's sort of an eye roller where, you know, a couple of generations ago you had Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy and love was actually part of the national discourse. You could use that word uh, without people being cynical. Is there a, a room for that word? I pray. I mean, I know I, there are leaders that, that absolutely do use it in the same way that yeah, a few years ago, we were resistant to talking about 
racism or power and privilege in the way that we are today. True. Um, all of a sudden, it's part of this the lexicon within our culture that it that hasn't, especially amongst you know white privileged folk, that we haven't really had to look at. But because of everything that's happening, it's now up, and people are getting more and more comfortable taking ownership of some of this languaging, um, unpacking it. Because for years it was being introduced and introduced and people resisted and they fought it and they rejected it, but it continued to get introduced until it became normalized. My hope is that love would be the same thing, that some leaders just keep putting it out there and letting it rub up against people wrong until it becomes so commonplace that not to talk about love in the same way that to not talk about racism and not talk about power and privilege, you're just archaic right now in this day and age. It would be the same thing with love. And so to name it, to own it, to claim it is the only way for us to um, acclimate to it. What about for young burgeoning leaders, your students, who probably have all the essential ingredients for great leadership, but have also great fear Mm -hmm. associated with it? Like, oh, well, my, who's going to listen to my opinion? Or like, what can I do in the face of the enormity of the world's problems, that next generation, to overcome fear associated with being a great leader? One must do the inner work that is necessary to develop the self-confidence. I know that when I start to second-guess myself or I allow my own insecurity to come up, there's a little voice in my head that says, how dare you allow that insecurity or that doubt get in the way of doing what needs to be done when lives are at stake, especially when I can, especially when my own life is not at stake, especially if the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to take a hit, you know, like I'm going to get insulted, maybe get embarrassed or humiliated, like in the big picture, can I handle that? Now, maybe 20 years ago, no, I couldn't. But I would know that. I would sit with that and say, well, then you develop that muscle. Then do everything that you can right now in your capacity. Do your yoga, go to therapy, cry, rage, scream. Utilize these tools to build that muscle, to confront those limited beliefs so that they don't get in the way of the leadership. Do you think in a way that you've been able to tame your ego where you're just like, you know, I'm not what people think of me. So that's okay. And because I'm not, I can be brave and I can be courageous and I can be vulnerable because I don't care if someone tries to tear me down on Instagram or on Facebook. I see you all the time on social platforms, you know, and people are out there and they're gunning for you sometimes on one thing or another, but you feel, you seem very undaunted by that. Yeah. Well, it's not that I'm undaunted. I like, but when I get triggered, I, I just don't, I don't pick up the cell phone and start typing right away. I, I have a theory that that if I'm activated by something that someone says, there's truth to it. Meaning that if I immediately feel defensive by some projection that someone's put out, that there might actually be some truth to what's being said and I need to sit with that and peel back before I speak what is actually true and, and, and what's their own projection and see if I can learn something from it. Odds are I can. And more often than not, I can. I just... You know, I do the work. I, I, I sit in the shadow of this. And um, I also, you know, I put it in perspective. I think of the people in my life whom because of the color of their skin or because of their gender or because of their socioeconomic status, that they, they have no choice but to live every single day threatened or in fear or in lack. They have no choice 
but to either fight or withdraw. I have the choice. I don't have to fight if I don't want to. If I'm having that kind of a day, my privilege lets me say like, oh, I don't feel like dealing with this today. Like that, I struggle with that internally because I get that that privilege is just simply the luck of the draw. And that for me to take a day off because I'm a little overwhelmed and fatigued means that my friends have to fight harder. And it's the the gift of the privilege, again, like I said, is like I can take that hit. The worst thing that's going to happen to me is humiliation. But my life or livelihood will not be compromised or taken away. And so my leadership tells me, fluff up your hair, get out there, be a voice for social change, take accountability when it's essential, which I try to. I try to model what it looks like taking ownership. I don't do this well. This work is messy, but I own it and try to normalize that conversation and try not to get defensive and hope that within my leadership, people can see that there is a way to navigate these times and both be in the discomfort, take ownership for the way in which I show up in which is in any way unconscious and act anyway, lead anyway, and be humble in it without being passive to it. There's something about our time right now where people are just, they're craving quote unquote authenticity. And that might in the end have been the difference between the last presidential election, which, you know, could have been, there's a million reasons to attribute the result, but one of them is that there was just one person that actually felt truly more authentic. Mm-hmm. Even if you disagreed with 99% of the things that came out of his mouth, it was more it was more honestly who he was and that we're moving away from a sort of more scripted form of leadership. Do you feel that that's true? And do you feel like, does that feel comfortable for you? It's very interesting because it's the product of reality shows, you know, right now. And uh, there is something that's powerful and seductive about being able to relate to someone. Obviously, there's a craving for authenticity, but we have to reframe now what that looks like and how it is modeled. And politicians have been fraught with that veil, that mask playing both sides. Um, And obviously that no longer works. So we went to this extreme and I think that there is some something very positive about it because now we see we see this naturalness that's happening now amongst politicians and amongst even newscasters people dropping f-bombs things that are even me who's like you know a chronic swearer even me bristle a little bit like i I want authenticity but (laughs) but hey come on (laughs) you know not that much and and so there's the, again, there's this sea change that's happening that needed to happen. And maybe we'll find some balance at some point as much bad that, and that I will say that Trump did, again, looking at it from a spiritual perspective, there is a lot of value to what has happened and how it is forcing people to have to wake up and to also look at their own inner Trump and take some accountability for it. It's a very interesting time that way for people to say, well, if I want authenticity, 
then I'm going to have to be authentic within myself. It's easier to demand authenticity, pointing it outward. But if we're not connecting to the places where we are absolutely within that shadow, why would we expect anything different? So we're being invited now to pay attention to all of our own bigotry and prejudice and xenophobia because it exists within us. This is the gift that I've gotten. The word that I work with now more than ever within my own leadership is accountability. Like I will not tell someone else what they should do, say, or behave without turning that back on myself and saying, where am I racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic and xenophobic? And where do I practice deliberately bias and discrimination and bigotry? I know it exists. It has to, because as a white woman of privilege, raised in an environment that was white, to a, in a school that was white, in a religion that is white, all of that has infiltrated itself on my cells. It has informed the way in which I experience and see the world. And it might not be overt, but I promise you, put me in a situation where I am overwhelmed, tired, scared, and my rational brain turns off and my primal brain turns on, then the messages in my body that are designed to separate, that I inherited, that will come out in passive aggressive ways, microaggressions, but it will come out. I need to know this. I need to anticipate it. I need to normalize this because I cannot be effective in my leadership and I can't tell someone else to look at the subtleties within their own, whatever the ism is, until I know in my own body like, oh, that's how this works. So accountability for me in leadership right now is key. And if there's anything I can say to any the people who are listening is that if there's any part of them that feels called to leadership to know that to answer that particular call, even if it's the most, the tiniest of ways, meaning the way in which you parent your children, going into the school system, like as in the PTA, and just contributing that what we need are ordinary human beings, ordinary citizens who are not sitting by passively allowing our leadership to determine our happiness, that all of our bodies matter, all of our thoughts count, and all of our actions um, can actually make a difference. And so that's what I'm interested in, seeing people uh, develop that confidence to know that they can actually move this needle. So it's now it's time for our community to step in to their personal leadership and not be quiet. No, no, we, 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 we can't. Too many lives are at stake. And like I said, especially, you know, for someone in my, in, in my own position, uh, how, how dare I not? Be sure to check out our course, Redefining Leadership, now open for free signups at onecommune.com. And if you enjoyed this or any of our other episodes, share the show with a friend or leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening to the Commune Podcast. I'm Jeff Krasno, and I'll see you next time.